to Professor Cecilia Mengiver of the UCLA, um, our next guest in conversation with us. Thank you uh, for joining us and welcome. Uh, Professor Mengiver is Professor of Sociology at the University of California, Los Angeles, and is the 130th President of the American Sociological Association. I think you are taking office next year, uh, formally. No? Um, is also the author of very important work around issues of uh, um, violence, legal violence, uh, migration regime, and in particular with an emphasis on the impact on, on migrants themselves. So the encounter between migrants and the states and the immigration regime. Cecilia, the first thing I would like to start with our conversation with is to, to think about that. Obviously, we are about less than 50 days away from uh, the next uh, election. And uh, migration has been a very important issue uh, in, uh, for Trump in, in the debate. We remember, everyone remember the, the famous uh, wall that had to be paid by Mexico. Uh, and I was wondering, how do you see, you know, what you see as the main issues that uh, we're going to, um, in the current electoral campaign that uh, as far as migration and migrants are, are concerned? Well, first of all, thank you so much for this invitation. Migration has been at the center of almost every election um, in the past couple of decades. And it's always a hot issue. It's always controversial while migrants continue to come in, continue to settle, continue to work and raise families, but it's always been there in the, at the forefront of politics here. For this election, this election is, it's, it's, it's a, it will have other, other issues um, that are more, that are equally pressing for, for the electorate, I'm sure. But with regards to migration, it will of course be discussed in the same, with the same terminology, with the same um, hot topic framing, where I think we, we will pay attention is what happens after the election, what happens um, after January 20th, when either the current president continues uh, in for a second term or a new president is elected what will happen to migration policy what will happen to the efforts to close um to to close opportunities for or even the right to seek asylum in the in the United States. What will happen to all the the multiple issues, the multiple components of the immigration regime? It's either going to continue more of this and, and be amplified. Mm -hmm. If 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 we can think of amplifications, we always think that it can't get worse, mm -hmm. but it does. And so we don't know what the, the bottom is, it's, it's bottomless. And so it, on the one hand, one, um, result, one result may end up in amplifying what we already have. Another result, if another, if someone else takes off, takes the, um, is elected, could start some change, and I, I'm being very careful here because 
no matter what the intentions of the of a possible new different government may be it would be extremely difficult politically practically um, to reverse what has already been done just to give you a brief example um, the current administration has implemented over 400 policies over 400 policies re related related to migration across different areas of life for immigrants not just at the border but this includes border interior border enforcement family separation um, family reunification across the board over 400 different policies even with the best in the best case scenario it will take more than four years to reverse even to, to begin to reverse some of that so that's um, on the one hand it could get on a different course to start some form of reversal but even that base case scenario is not going to be easy and I was thinking in terms of the the everyday the impact on the everyday life of people I mean the fact of become so such a controversial issue even more I know that obviously that also in the past we have had a huge debate around migration but in a sense uh, this almost daily victimization being at the center of the attacks of the president has uh, been blamed for uh, everything and and the opposite of everything I was wondering what is the the daily impact I mean is people got used to it because that's one of the risks here that basically has become normalized or there is forms of resistance you know of course yes yes if, um, migrants are exposed to to these attacks every day they watch the news they are on social media they know what's going on they they know how they are being portrayed how they are are being framed and it is very hurtful for them because they know that these these are um, these are mischaracterizations of their intentions of their of their lives of the work they do and what's interesting to them is that at the same time that they are sustaining um, life especially now during COVID many of them are about essential workers mm. at the same time that they are sustaining life for for millions they are being um, demonized and mischaracterized and um, and framed in, in as criminals and so it, it's very difficult but there are forms of of, of they respond in different ways mm. they organize for instance and um, in the work I do on temporary protected status, the National Alliance for TPS has been extremely mm -hmm. active. Right now, they are on a on a tour around the a bus tour around the country, um, informing people about this temporary protected status. So, so people have organized. Migrants have organized, um, not in, at the in, in, in different organizations, but also at, the, at a more personal level, I think they want people to know who they are and they try to, to respond. They try to respond by overworking, by doing more, by doing 
extra so that they they regain some of that image that conforms to 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 themselves yeah i i, I mean the overdoing is actually what i wanted uh, to to say in the sense that i mean we have seen for example in europe uh, the case of the the migrants who climbed the four floors of a building to save a child who was falling down from the balcony. So this idea of the heroic migrants, in a sense, set the bar so high that everyone, the normal people, really struggle also to somehow to see themselves recognized into it. Is it something you were seeing as well? Because we are seeing this problem of, you know, the migrants have to be really superhero uh, nowadays to, yes. to comply. Right. So they have to be, um, just to, again, give you an example from, from the work um, that I've done on temporary protected status. This status has to be renewed every 18 months. Mm. But to renew that status, they have to comply with so much. Of course, they, the first thing is to keep a, a clean criminal record. Um, they, um, because, it includes a work permit, they, they hold jobs. They, they have to be so squeaky clean that it's, it's a, a disciplinary um, tool for, um, to, to, all these requirements become a disciplinary tool for, for immigrants to, 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 to then start unwittingly start to set the bar so high for other immigrants who may not have um, the work permit, who may not have the one thing that makes those who can excel and be superheroes. But that's, that comes from, from, from the structure of immigration, um, the immigration regime itself. I've recently finished some some work on um, on Brexit and the position of uh, European nationals in in UK. The thing that emerged is um, is this weakness, this fragility of legal status, it, that seems to be um, uh, something that also I mean historically undocumented migrants, the asylum seekers, refugees have uh, been experiencing the you know the state violence and uh, the the precarity that was coming with the migration uh, regime. But increasingly, seems something that also more so-called privileged migrants uh, are experiencing. I mean, at least in, in European context. I was wondering if uh, this is something that you have identified also in the in U.S. context. The main um, immigrant receiving countries, this, the statuses that are multiplying are mm. the, the uncertain in between temporary, and that adds fragility to the to the immigrants but also serves multiple purposes for, um, for the immigration regime. It's a, it's a tool of social control, of course. It's, um, it's a disciplinary tool for the other immigrants um, to show that they, this is how they have to behave. And, and it, it's, it, these are extremely fragile, um, circumstances to live in, under because, for instance, any at least in the United States, these these um, these statuses can be terminated at any time, not only for the individual um, immigrant who 
could, might, for some reason, might not be able to fulfill the requirements, but also for the entire group as a whole. Um, and that's what we're facing with DACA, with TPS, with these um, temporary statuses that can be terminated um, any, at any time. So it, it adds, it amplifies the uncertainty and the, the fragility of life for the immigrants who hold the status, but also for those who don't, because it's, it's, they're not, it sends a message about um, control and, and what people can do. I mean, traditionally, citizenship uh, has always been like a secure status uh, in forest, uh, um, sorry. Citizenship has always been traditionally a safe status, but increasingly, I mean, at least from what we hear about the debate in the US, we have seen on one hand attacks on the birthright citizenship. I mean, there's been going on for decades when it seems to have returned, but also this attempt uh, to deprive people that are already citizens of their citizenship. I mean, that's uh, something okay. that this current, um, so is there something that uh, you can tell us something about? Yes, yes. Um, this is, this is, um, this is, um, uh, at a very at the heart of, of of many many things that are happening here, um, we used to think that lawful permanent residents in the United States, green card holders, was a permanent status, was a um, uh, a more secure status that could put immigrants on a on a path to integration, not the only thing that mattered, but a, a, an important component for their, um, that would shape their path to integration. We used to think that it was a secure status, that it was, um, that in fact, when, when I um, participated in the, in, the, in the writing of the National Academy's report on immigrant integration, we even, put the different statuses ranked according to level of, sec of, of security that they confirm the immigrants. So we put citizenship um, through naturalization, lawful permanent residence, and then the, the more precarious statuses, mm -hmm. the um, DACA, TPS. <clears throat> and then in this continuum, we, we put at the bottom, of course, undocumented migration, undocumented status. Within these past five, six years, we, we, I think we need to rethink this because lawful permanent residence is no longer a secure status. There have been many thousands of lawful permanent residents who have been deported, who have lost the permanence of the, this status supposedly confers. Um, and now we're, we're even seeing with this administration um, the, the threat to denaturalize um, immigrants as well. Um, so it sort of continues to erode the, the, the permanence that we, we used to see in, in the, the different legal statuses. So um, not only are more unsecure and temporary status is being created, but those that were already in place that were supposed to be more secure are being eroded and made more insecure. Mm -hmm.
Professor Cecilia Mengiver of the UCLA, and our next guest in conversation with us. Thank you uh, for joining us and welcome. Um, in the past, you have written about uh, the racialization of the immigration regime and immigration statuses. I was wondering if, in uh, is something that uh, I mean, especially following the murder of George Floyd, the Black Lives Matter movement going global in many ways. Um, I was wondering, how do you see this process of racialization? Uh, changing has changed over the last you know four years or there has been a continuity with the past racialization of of different immigration statuses has always been around in in the united states um since the chinese exclusion act mm. and before that in different and in different guises and versions formalized in different ways in law um, with, with different groups of Asian immigrants, um, with different form, different um, groups across time. So my point is that the racialization of immigrants through law has existed historically. But it, what changes is the, in the, the actual immigrant groups. So um, there are different immigrant groups that take, take the place of the previous ones at different points in time. But the, the basic architecture of law, racialization through law, has been part of the, of the system since, since federal immigration law existed. Citizenship law existed. Um, uh, another sort of body of work you've done a lot is has uh, uh, been paying attention to families, you know, my, my immigrant families or mixed status families, and uh, and I was wondering, uh, and this sort of uh, uh, increased precarity of status, how affects also the this the citizen part of mixed status families uh, in the U.S. at the moment. Oh, it's um, this is. This is a, a major effect because, as we know, um, legal status is conferred on individuals, but the effects are never only on individuals because individuals live in families, in communities, in, with co-workers, with co-religionists. It, it's, it's never only on individuals. So, for instance, um, I did a, a survey of temporary protected uh, Salvadorians and Hondurans on temporary protected status, and two thirds of them have U.S. born children. They are now at risk of losing even the the temporary protection that they had because the, the current administration um, was just given green light to terminate this this. Um, 
TPS for, for these two groups and, and for Haitian too. Um, even though these, um, these immigrants have held this so-called temporary status for 20 years, um, meaning that they are more settled here than they mm. could be in their home countries because many have spent half, more than half of their lives in the United States and they have US born, um, they have US born children, they have US born spouses, they have spouses and children in other legal statuses as well. So it's um, the, the, the repercussions of ending temporary protected status, for instance, go far and wide. Do you also see a repercussion and effects also affecting the transnational family, meaning like the transnational connection, the rest of the families, which is not in the US, for example? Oh, of course, of course, um, because we know that they, um, you know, it's, it's not just the, the monetary remittances that are affected, but in terms of the, um, of the families and, and communities, in their in their home countries, um, the effects are also quite um, quite broad. What 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 happens when families reunite after not seeing each other for decades, for instance? Where how do they do they um, make sense of being a family again? Um, they know that they have been connected. They know that they they have they are a family, but in practical terms, how how does that happen? When um, we actually did a, an edited book um, with four cases, looking at um, return migration or through quasi voluntary and deportation. Um, <coughs> excuse me to Mexico, Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala. And um, looking at the, at the sort of um, ripple effects of, of deportations or, or voluntary, I put it in quotes, voluntary re returns, because volu that voluntary, involuntary, does not quite apply to the, to the immigrants that we, um, in, in, in the study. And we interviewed um, the, the people who had returned, the um, members of their families, but also people in different institutional locations in the, in the places where they were returned to, including police officers and priests and doctors and nurses, to see how they viewed the return migration of, of their of people to their communities. Mm. And the, the effects and the ripple effects are so wide, complex, and in so many different ways. The families, of course, have to think about what is it like to live with someone we haven't seen in two decades, even though we know this person is a beloved member of the family. We've, we've been in touch through WhatsApp and phone mm. and but what is it like to live with that person again? So that's especially spouses or children. 
in, in our research on the, on the children of Brexit. And we also interviewed some uh, Europeans that had gone back to their uh, country of origin or another European member states. And one of the cases that I found uh, really st st stuck with me was this, uh, the challenges that, for example, uh, Polish children who were born in London encountered in going be uh, in a Polish school back in Poland where they never lived before. And yes, they spoke a little bit of Polish because the parents were both Polish, but they didn't have uh, um, the pedagogical experience of a Polish school. They didn't have the written language for the age and the sense of discrimination for being uh, they were experiencing. And we had sorry, they were really traumatizing. Uh, Even what return means. Is, 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 it's open to question because, for instance, with one of my students, we did a small study of um, Mexicans returning to a small town in Mexico. And um, the, they brought children who were born in Mexico, but also the children who were born in the United States. And the children who were born in the United States, for them, it wasn't really a return. Because they were, that's not their country. They were not born and raised there. And so even, the, even just what return means in these, in these conditions, is, is, it's, not, it's not what we imagine that return is. We've seen in a number of countries that COVID has become a way of also uh, the, the threat on public health has become a, uh, weaponized for immigration control and enforcement. You know, we've seen a border closure, we've seen pushbacks, uh, um, migrants in reception center have been locked in. Uh, in the, you know, uh, and, and I was wondering, I mean, this is happening, you know, recently there has been the fire in the, in the refugee camp in Lesbos, in Moria, uh, where it was a, f a protest against the fact that um, because some people had been positive to the test, they locked everyone in in an overcrowded center uh, without thinking about, you know, sometimes we talk about, uh, we say that, you know, stay home as a, because that's makes safer. I mean, home means many things to many people. Uh, if you're a migrant in a specific condition like that, that means actually for you means put your life at risk even more. So within the context of the US, uh, have you seen manifestation of this um, link between uh, public health threat and immigration control or a way of using uh, the COVID as a way of uh, exercising even more discipline, disciplining power on migrants? Well, it's, you know, with, with any um, disaster, whether it's a pandemic or, or fires that we have here in California, um, with any disaster, um, inequalities and marginalization already existing gets exposed and amplified. So with regards to migrants and COVID, um, COVID has been used by the current administration to continue to create policies to bar migrants from even the right to apply for asylum. In the name of COVID, there have been so many new policies that continue to encroach on immigrants' rights. So that, yes, absolutely. With regards to people who are in, in, in the interior of the country, it's, it's um, there's a, a, an interesting juxtaposition on the one hand, 
in the news we see reports that they um, that they are essential workers, that they um, in the health um, in the healthcare sector, but also in the food industry, they harvest cross, crops, and so across the board, they are seen as indispensable. At the same time, the, um, we see the administration trying to, in the name of COVID too, mm. to marginalize them even more. Mm. So we see the tension on the side of the employers and the economy, I guess, more generally to exalt the, the virtues of the contributions immigrants make. But on the policy, political side, we see a, a major effort to undermine that. A, a, final, a final question. And um, as an incoming uh, president of the American Sociological Association, and we're living a time of uh, anti-intellectualism, we, you know, where the, the political elite and establishment uh, uh, doesn't like science. The rule is there for us sociologists. Uh, what can we do? It is, um, it is, it's, of course, it's a very challenging time, but it is during challenging times that sociologists have to stand up and continue and do even more, double down on our efforts to make sure we, we put our research to more, to, to even more attention um, from the public to redouble our efforts to make our sh make sure that our research reaches policymakers who may may have a sympathetic ear for these issues to make sure that that we reach the media too because media frames what what the public consumes um, so we in these challenging times i think we have to even to do even more um, than, than, than before because it's, it's, a, it's an attack on all fronts. We just had a, a, a conversation at the Latin American um, Sociological Association. They invited um, president-elects of the Central American Studies Association, the, the European Latin American Studies Association. There were about five or six of us talking precisely about this. The, the challenges that sociologists have under this new context of, of attacks to, to intellectualism and to science. And, and the consensus across the board, and this included people who are in Sweden, in Argentina, in here in the United States, the, it was, there was general consensus about the threats and the, and the attacks and what we need to do. And I think another, another point that we all agreed on is to strengthen connections across the board. Mm, I agree. Thank you. Thank you very much. I, I think what is difficult this time is also that uh, some of the attacks have really undermined also uh, what we do vis-a-vis 
our communities, you know, the, the communities that we want to work, to work with, you know, this, uh, it's, it's, it's the media, yes, it's the politician, but it's also the fact that it's very hard to go to talk, you know, in schools, it's, uh, uh, to go to talk with the migrants communities, with the local communities, so there is a need for reconnect and also to reestablish a sense of trust that has been very much undermined by these attacks, I think. Exactly, it's the trust that we didn't know could be undermined. Yeah. But it has, yes. Thank you very much, Cecilia. It has been a great pleasure to talk to you for yeah, this conversation with you. Iris. Thank you.